Hi, I'm Wendy Murdoch, and this is Webinars with Wendy. I've been doing a series of webinars during the pandemic, largely for my own entertainment, so that I can get to talk to people that I never get the chance to talk to because I'm too busy traveling. So uh, this has been just an amazing thing that's happened during these webinars, and I had no idea how many I was going to do. This is number 71. Um, I will be taking a little bit of a break in July because I'm traveling to New Hampshire to do a Surefoot workshop and a riding clinic. Um, we're still, um, it's going to be a little bit changed because my normal clinic schedule I can't really do. But anyway, I'm going to New Hampshire and I may or may not be able to do webinars while I'm away. But we'll certainly pick it back up uh, when I have a good internet signal. That's always the caveat. Um, today my guest is Deb Davies. And I heard of Deb through Ida Hammer. Um, Ida and Deb did a joint workshop together and Ida was so, I, she was floating ecstatic. So clearly I had to have Deb come on for one of the webinars, especially when Ida told me that she can talk all about proprioception. And this is one of my favorite things because I think Surefoot does so much for proprioception, but you know, it's kind of one of those things that it's kind of fuzzy in your brain. You're not really sure what it is, how it works, how you say it, how you spell proprioception is actually a big one. I've um, uh, managed to obliterate that word on a number of occasions. Um, but we're going to have Deb clarify everything about proprioception. I'm so excited about this. So uh, thank you, Deb, for doing this webinar. Oh really God. appreciate it. Thank you, Wendy. Thank you so much for having me on. And thank you for hosting all these amazing webinars. You know, not only do you just share your wisdom with your clinics around the world, but doing this has added a whole new dimension for all of us. So just thank it's you. It's a blast. I'm not, I just, I actually have so much fun doing this that it's, um, and now that I've got sort of the technical side down, um, I'm thinking about getting a headset because Raquel Butler had this cool headset and her sound was so amazing. But anyway, we might, we might upscale a little. I so Deb, um, tell us a little bit about your background because I don't really know how you got started or where you, yeah, you have a bit of an accent. So I'm wondering where you're from. Yeah. So I'll just really share briefly. I'm from England and, um, I was born, grew up in England, and I started my equestrian career in England, um, like many of us do, just going to Barnes, and I worked at a therapeutic writing facility, and um, just just fell in love with everything about the horse, but particularly, even from then, my main interest was how the, the horse functioned from inside out. That was, that was and has always been my interest. So, um, you know, just really fast-forwarding quickly, um, I went through Pony Club, I did my British Horse Society examinations. Um, I actually was, um, was a representative for Great Britain on the junior three-day event team. And then I went to Europe to compete and ride and work um, for a junior rider. So I trained, helped train and worked with lots of amazing trainers out there. And the beautiful thing about that was actually she was in school and I got to ride all her horses and go to her <laughs> trainers and get all this incredible information. And so then I would ride and then she would just get on a horse at the competition. And, you know, in my 20s, that was just amazing for me. I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't have to pay for all this amazing education. So um, I actually make a joke that I rode my way around Europe, which was actually quite true. And um, in the early mid 80s, I actually came over here. I was um, offered a job um, by to work for Norman Dallajoyo, who was oh, an wow. Olympic show jumper rider. And he would come, yeah, amazing man. Um, and he would come to Europe and buy horses from Francois Mati, whom I rode with at the time. And so I would often, you know, ride horses 
for Norman to look at. So anyway, long story short, um, I came over here to work with him, work for him, train with him. You know, I had amazing experiences for many years with, with Norman. Where was he based? Um, he was based in Bedford, New York. Well, that, that's what I thought because I'm from Stanford, Connecticut. Okay, okay. I don't know, and so it's like, wait a second, that's a name from the past. I know that name, and I, yeah. I was like, wasn't that, wasn't he in the, you know, the Bedford area? Yeah, yeah he, wow. was that, he was that, he was at Coca Farm belonging to Judy Richter. Oh, so. God, yeah. <laughs> yes, the whole thing. So we tried. Okay, now what years were you there? I was there in 85, 86, 87, 88. Oh yeah, no, I was I was long gone. I, I where was I in the uh, eighty four is when the horse flipped on. I was in Kentucky at that point. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yep. So yeah, I had a great experience in traveling the U.S. and then was was actually planning to go back to England because to be honest, I never wanted to come to America. Oh. I wanted to stay in Europe. You know, I never appealed to me. It was just too big and everything was just too big. You know, um, but then I came and I'm here. I am thirty half my life later. Anyway, I never left essentially, and now I'm a resident and all of that. So this is my home, and um, I love America. And um, so anyway, after I left Norman, I. I actually left Norman because I was ready to go back out on my own and start competing again and just really following my passion, which was learning about horses from the inside out. So just really quickly, I, I competed um, to the upper levels in eventing and at the same time studied all types of modalities, healing modalities from cranial sacral and um, quantum, quantum energetics and um, at the same time kind of branched out to start learning about the emotional body, the emotional mind, body and spirit of the horse and did a lot of one-on-one um, -on -one time, like me one with a wild horse herd one away from anybody for, for like a month at a time. And I just love that. And so um, that really, you know, that really kind of blended together my, my desire to compete and ride and train. And I had a facility at the time and to, to and just put that together with how does this, how does the horse's mind, body, emotional um, habitat, how can we combine these two to make a healthy, you know, a healthy relation, have a healthy relationship with the horses. Um, so I ended up kind of weaning away from competing. I moved to Kentucky and um, worked at an alternative, alternative training facility as the trainer and got more and more into wanting to learn about the horse's body and train from that perspective. So competition was no longer my primary focus. It was how to support the horse, mind, body, spirit um, from that perspective. And then what comes from that, you know, be it competition, whatever that is. So I, um, I went to osteopathic school in 2009 um, and trained with, um, studied under Yannick Blugan, who's just an amazing, amazing teacher with tons of information. I also studied osteopathy in, in the UK. And um, to this day, what I do essentially now is I travel the world um, teaching about the horse from the inside out, from the, um, from the standpoint of the emotional, the physical, the mental, and combining all of those quantum pieces with our own, uh, our own being and um, allowing people to ride and fulfill their dreams and missions with their horses from that perspective. And I'm just so blessed. <laughs> Well, it sounds like you've really shaped your world to be exactly what you want. I am so blessed. I am so blessed. And the thing I love most, Wendy, and I think most of the, the listeners on would can relate to this. I love to learn. The horses are such incredible teachers. And if we just step aside and allow them to inform us, we can just learn so much.
about what they need. And so I just, I'm just a constant, you know, people say I'm a teacher, but I'm actually a student more than a teacher, I believe. Well, I think being a good student is what makes us the best teacher. Yes, yes. You know, when we're willing to keep asking questions and to keep learning and then sharing the information. So I find that teaching helps really clarify my knowledge. Yeah. Um, and I get to see it expressed outward, like, um, and reflected back to me. And then I go, oh, wait, well, maybe I don't understand this exactly. Or uh, that wasn't how I meant it. So what is it that I said or did that got that result instead of the one I was looking for? And so it's this sort of reflection of our own knowledge and information when we see it in teaching. And that's one of the things I love about it. And why I started writing was the same reason, because um, when I when I started to write, I realized, did I really understand it enough to make it clear to someone who knew nothing? Absolutely. Perspective. Absolutely. So, you know, I think that the, the consummate student is the best teacher. <laughs> and even subjects and topics that we have, you know, we have an understanding of, you know, when you really go deep and you, as you say, you start to teach because what you teach is twice learn, you realize, wow, I need to go back and just clarify or deepen that awareness. And um, that's the part I love. And that was wonderful. I mean, I'm sad for the whole COVID experience and what people went through. But for me, being home to study and be with my horses, which, you know, they're, 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 they're like my laboratory, you know, they're my experiments as I do my in-hand and writing from different perspectives. I've just really got to, you know, hone in on that. So. Absolutely. Yeah. I've been, I, I'm now trimming three horses, one that has chronic laminitis, one that um, hasn't really been done much, much with. Um, and then my own horse, and I always did my own horse, but now I'm, ex you know, like working through all of this information that I've been getting from all these <laughs> webinars and going, okay, how's that working? And what do I need to do next? And oh, did I think about that? And so fortunately, you know, um, the, it's totally fine that I can play with these horses and, and, um, and I have backup if I need help. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Yay for backup. <laughs> right, yep, yep. <laughs> So. All right, so you have a, a presentation for us today? I do. I, you know, I, I thought what we do is, and you know, I basically, I feel like I just know this much about proprioception, but I'm going to share everything I do know, or as much as I do know, um, in a short period of time, kind of clam it together. So um, I thought what we do is I, I go through, um, I made a little PowerPoint because I think that kind of helps with understanding and the visual learners. And so I figured I would put this into like three sections. The first section will be to help people understand, you know, what is proprioception, I can't even say it, and, <laughs> and um, how, why is it important, you know, why is it important in, our, in the horse world, or to us even. And then the second section, I thought I would do a little bit of what I call nerding with nerves. So I would just introduce um, some of the sensory nerves that, you know, work, that are the proprioceptors that govern proprioception. And it might, you know, for some people, it might be a little too much, but I'm just going to go through that really quickly and just recognize when I do that, it's not about understanding the nerves or their names or any of that, but it's more about having an awareness of the locations of the proprioceptors, because these locations are areas that we influence every day with our horses. And then um, I'm going to end up with a story on um, a little horse that is a student, is a client of mine, um, and how essentially some some um, injury and surgery um, affected her proprioceptive ability and how the surefoot pads are also helping her come back into into balance so um yeah that's the goal for today wendy that's cool and i kind of think of this as as proprioception 101 because 
Uh, I, I um, you know, spoiler alert, I looked ahead at your, your PowerPoint and it, it really helped. It's just this really great basic information that so many of us lack because, you know, the words get thrown around, but if we don't really know what they are and what they mean, it's fuzzy. And so we can't capitalize on its, on its maximum potential. So I, yeah, I, like I said, I cheated. <laughs> <laughs> You're allowed. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, the thing that I would say to us, to everybody, before we, before we, before I pull the slide up, slide slideshow up, is proprioception is one of those things, almost like the autonomic nervous system that we don't think about. You know, you you don't think about getting up off a chair or getting out of your car and say to yourself, "Oh, hold on, I have to turn my proprioceptors on." You know, it's it's something. It's autonomic. We don't think about it. We don't think about it when we're riding. Um, we don't think about it when we're asking for a transition or a, a movement from our horse. And yet, it is the impetus for correct movement and function. And so, if we have a better understanding of what it is and how it works, we can support our horses because proprioception um, can be inhibited by some of the things we do or injuries and so forth. So, I, I really feel like um, this might be you know, it might be helpful for us just to have a broader spectrum of thought about this topic. Um, you know, and, and some people, you know, when do we even really, the only time I would say we really focus on proprioception is if you're getting up in the middle of the night and it's pitch black and you have to go to the bathroom or you have to go get water or something. And, you know, you're kind of feeling your way around, aren't you? And your body knows where it is in space and time. You're not usually use, using your visual cortex at that moment. So that would be a really um, good example, I think, for people to understand, oh, that's when my proprioception really kicks in and I'm really aware of it, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. And um, it, it's safe to say too that whatever you're talking about with the horse and proprioception is the same for people. Absolutely. Like proprioception is across the board in, in mammals for sure. And I would assume that Reptiles, birds, all, you know, all living animals must have appropriate, they have to know where they are in space. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So this isn't just a, a horse thing or a human thing. This is a living, breathing animal thing. Right. So I'll go ahead and share my screen and um, see what happens here. <laughs> It'll be fine. We did a little test. Yeah, we did a little, little um, check in here. There we go. Awesome. I think we're good. So um, we'll, we'll begin, Wendy, by just, you know, talking a little bit about what it is. So essentially, to, to put it in layman's terms and make it really quickly, it's really where your body is in space and time. And it's really um, stimuli that is given to the sensory neurons in the body. So the sensory neurons pick up this stimuli that goes to the spinal cord and says, hey, figure out what has to happen in order for me to know where to put my feet. So really that's, that's what in a nutshell is happening. So, you know, what are proprioceptors? And that's a really good question because we have so many nerves in our body, but proprioceptors, proprioceptors are, are what we call specialized nerves. And specialized, these specialized nerves are sensory receptors. So they, they respond to physical, physiological, neurological um, stimuli throughout the body, as well as environmental stimuli that, that travel you know, around the environment and affect our, um, our, our body as well. And we find them primarily, what I must say is they are all over the body and they are 
so strong and so sensitive and more enhanced in the fascial system. And I'm actually not going into too much depth about the fascial system tonight, but it is, there's a lot of research being done about the proprioceptors that are in our fascial system. But what I'm going to specifically speak to tonight are the joints, um, the muscle body where there's, there's a lot of proprioceptors and that are really related to riding and, um, and the skin. And of course that all relates to those same proprioceptors or pressure receptors in the feet. So we're going to look at, look at that. And then we're going to obviously look at what proprioceptors, how does it work? So again, if you think of it as a feedback loop, it's information that is coming from somewhere. So in this case with proprioception, the information is coming from the peripheral region of the horse. So peripheral means outside. So it's coming from neurons from the, from, uh, that are responding to outside stimuli. And then that, those sensory neurons send, um, send an input, an electrical input to the, um, to the spinal cord or the brain, depending on what, what the neuron is. In the spinal cord and the brain, decisions have to be made based on location, speed that the, the, the horse is going at, his posture, his balance, what the task is at hand, and again, the environment. And then after that, a response is sent back out, which is called a motoric response, which is sent back out. And it's, it's, um, it's, it's broadcast in what we call either a feedback loop or a feed forward loop. And we'll be talking about those as we go on with the slides. So that's essentially, you know, a little basis on what um, proprioception is. So we have, as I said, we have proprioceptors located all over the body. The ones we are talking about today are located in muscle fibers. And those proprioceptors are called muscle spindles. And we're gonna go into details with all of these in just a moment. Um, we have other proprioceptors that are located in the interface of the muscles and tendons. And these are called Gol Golgi tendon organs. Um, in the joint capsules, we have um, mechanoreceptors, which if you think about it, it's mechanical. So those are mechanical receptors that are informing the joint about its torsion, about its angle, about how far it can actually stretch. And then we have others located in the skin, which we call uh, tactile mechanoreceptors. So, so Deb, can I just, I, okay, like, all right, how do I put this? I always thought proprioceptors were a discrete thing, but now I'm learning that, that because uh, I know about muscle spindles and Golgi and mechanoreceptors and tactile, but I didn't realize they were all considered proprioceptors. Mm -hmm. I yeah. thought it was like this separate special organelle that was the proprioceptor. I didn't realize that these were all types of proprioceptors. Correct, they are the types of proprioceptors that give information about where you are. So yes, they are considered types of proprioceptors. And these actually work with something which we'll talk about a little bit later is, um, is called the central program generators, which also help the government of moving. Um, but yeah, the appropriate, the, as you, as you said, these are all, you know, aspects of proprioceptors. So yeah. So that, so proprioceptors is a general term and these are specific receptors that exactly. are in the class of proprioceptors. Exactly. So a proprioceptor is a sensory nerve. Okay. And these are specific sensory nerves that are located in different areas of the horse. Okay. Or person. Or person. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, 
and and they actually and what the what what they do a proprioceptor responds to a chemical or a mechanical change so any kind as you'll see there there's a lot of stretch receptors through some of these proprioceptors as we, as we'll look at in the muscle fibers here um, yeah, um raquel butler on on her webinar talked about and showed us pictures of the of the golgi apparatus and the muscle yeah. cell. but I, I i mean this is like you know news alert <laughs> <laughs> you never stop learning right i know i know i'm i, I know i'm I, I, it's just mind-boggling. I could just, I could just study. I could just be a constant student. But <laughs> so, um, so I'm just going to put this. This is what I call the proprioceptive map. Again, I'm trying to repeat this in a few different ways so people can kind of just get, get, get it in a simplified way before we go too deep. And you know, in this, in this, um, see if my, there we go. In this slide i liked i like to break it down and help people think about it as something simple that we might do so you know most people at some point in their life have been on an airplane well you have to have you you get to the airport and you have to figure out which gate you have to go to so that's kind of like your sensory receptor if you will you're being told okay you get to this gate you take this track you go to this terminal so you go to that gate you you get that sensory information you get that information and you walk to the to the gate and at the gate you get this information about okay your flight is now delayed or your flight is on time and here's what's going to happen and here's the temperature where you're going and here's all the things you need to know about this outgoing flight and that i call it's like the gate where you're waiting for your airplane is essentially where you get information about your next step and that's very similar to what i would would, would um correlate to the information that is in the spinal cord and the brain it's gathered all this information and now it's kind of assimilating it all and deciding what happens next or when that information is, is going to go out so then you get you get this information and finally some little voice comes on the intercom and says okay we are boarding our plane now so here's your walk to the plane there's your outgoing stimuli and you're getting on your plane and then you have a motoric response, which is a literal motor in an airplane taking you to where you need to go. So if we think of the information that comes in and goes out, instead of think about it as like an afferent nerve, an afferent nerve is a nerve that brings information in and an efferent nerve is a nerve that takes information out. We just think about it in terms of, oh, this is my story of going from the terminal to the gate to the airplane and then to my destination. It kind of Takes it makes it a little easier, I think, for people to understand. Um, so essentially, again, information comes in from the peripheral receptors, also known as sensory or mechanical mechanoreceptors. It's projected along incoming nerve systems, so it's incoming information. It travels to the spinal cord and brain, which is the central nervous system. And then the information is processed and a motor response is initiated. So essentially the motor response is the end result of what your horse is going to do in space and time or what you are going to do in space and time. The, the, um, the information as it goes to the spinal cord, there's, there's two pathways. Some information goes directly to the spinal cord immediately. And it has to go immediately because if you think about the response when a horse is in movement, he needs that response right away. So that information that goes to the spinal cord immediately tells him how to orchestrate the muscle movements and the flexion and extension between his joints to make a smooth transition or to change gait or 
um, how to how to um, readjust his posture to the terrain that he's in. And then there's what we call a free nerve ending, which is a proprioceptor. That's the one that goes directly to the brain first. And the reason that goes to the brain first is that is a pain receptor. So if there's any pain or there's, there's any discomfort in the horse's body, the brain alerts that nerve that, oh my gosh, there's pain. We cannot allow the horse to take this next step. So most of the receptors go straight to the spinal cord, but just one goes off to, um, to the brain. And that is what we call a noce receptor, which is a, brain, a pain receptor. So why is any of this important? You know, um, okay, so we know horses need proprioception to know where they are in space and time, but what's the big deal? Well, obviously, other than that, the big deal is proprioception and neurologic input and output is essential for the health and vitality and well-being of our horses. Obviously, our riding horses and the horses we work with have to have different elements of posture and balance than perhaps a horse in the wild that doesn't have to carry us. Um, but the horses in the wild, they have to have their correct posture for the job that they do, for their walking 75 miles a day, for their fright and flight response to their environment. So they have to have their correct posture for their job. But for the riding horses, we have to have additional correction and, and, and postural awareness and weight bearing posture because we are asking them to carry us. And the proprioception aids in all of that and all of that aids in the proprioception so there's another feedback loop in our proprioceptive awareness so if we if we take first of all um the beginning element of what we're looking for in every horse before we begin riding and, and training and so forth um, to support him we're looking for a weight-bearing posture and as we know that is not something a horse is born with that is a learned posture that is only again necessary when when we're wanting to ride them. So in order to have correct posture, that horse must have information about the correct use of his muscles, about how his muscles are working together and firing and orchestrating this conversation in order to have a weight-bearing posture, in order to know where his feet are in time and space so that he can have a balanced um, posture. So that's one of the first things we, you know, we recognize, oh gosh, that plays into this very fundamental piece of correct posture. Um, the next thing, of course, that we're asking our horses to have is balanced form and function. We, we want to be able to ride our horses or work with them in hand and have them be in balance, both laterally and longitudinally, um, balance with, with their gaits and their strides so that he can have rhythm and relaxation. But in order to have that, they have to have correct posture. And in order to have both of those things, they have to have healthy proprioceptive input. So then we want coordinated dynamic agility. We want them to move in time and space. It's not enough for us, many people, to sit and look at them, which is a beautiful thing. And there's nothing wrong with the agility and that feeling of actually having that relationship with your horse and jumping fences and galloping cross country or doing what you want to do. But that is all proprioceptive and that comes from balanced form and function. So once again, we're looking at input from the proprioceptors to coordinate the agility. And then if you have a horse that is in correct balance, correct form and function, the coordination of that agility actually aids in his proprioceptive response, which then supports him to be able to carry a rider. I mean, how many times 
have we seen you know I'm, I'm sure you've seen this Wendy that you see a rider take a horse to a mounting block and you know they're inverted their heads inverted their inventor flexion you know they they have a, a hollow back and you they put a foot in a stirrup and that horse is kind of all out of balance and crooked and goes into complete asymmetry because he's not strong enough to carry a rider and you know we we might just think well we need to strengthen him but what we don't realize is he's not only not strong enough to carry his rider and to you know have balance within his own gates he's also interfering we are now interfering with his proprioceptive response which makes him sets him up for injury for you know twisting ankles for tripping for you know all kinds of motion um motion detrimental issues affected to his gait and then he's not going to be relaxed because he's out of balance so then he goes into his fright and flight response because he doesn't feel balanced he doesn't feel safe and horses have to feel safe in everything that we are doing so if he doesn't feel safe we are doing what i call increasing the base activity of the sympathetic nervous system which is his fright and flight system so when that is increased in any way, what happens is everything, um, everything gets hyper. So for example, you get hypertone, hyperreactivity, hypersensitive, hyperemotion, everything gets hyper, it gets turned up a notch. And really it has to, because if you think about what the body is doing, the body is preparing through dropping cortisol and adrenaline into the system and toning the getting contracture in the muscles so the horse can take off, the body's preparing that horse to flee um, or freeze or, or faint. I mean, but all of those responses are, are, you know, have the same increased base activity. So we simply get on a rider that's on a horse that's out of balance. He's, he's, feeling, he's feeling unsafe because he doesn't feel that he can really move his legs um, correctly and respond to his own nervous system. And so we've already escalated his nervous system, which means he's gonna now contract through his muscular system. He's gonna get hypertense, he's gonna become more emotional and reactive. And then what tends to happen at that point is the rider gets a little nervous, they dump in their own cortisol and adrenal levels. And so we have this escalation where neither horse or rider feels safe, and neither horse and rider are set up to have any kind of productive learning experience. And so that immediately, sends different input to that neurological system and affects the proprioceptive signals coming back. So I know this sounds kind of, I hope it doesn't sound confusing because it's really simple, but I'm trying to get across that it's so important that we have, that we develop correct posture, balance, form and function in our horses, that we have them, that we have them supported in a way that they can do the very thing that we are asking them to do. Otherwise, this whole system can go pretty haywire. So, and it's the, and I, I mean, it's the same term I use, the weight-bearing posture. There's a huge difference between a horse just, you know, grazing and wandering around and in the posture to bear weight. And it's that back that is raised, is lifted, is in flexion, that's strong like a bridge, and the back that is hollow, uh, um, I just think of it as extension as opposed to ventriflexion, but um, a hollow back is not strong and you're loading into the legs and into the joints and causing a lot of problems. Absolutely, absolutely. And then sometimes, unfortunately, um, you know, the very, the worst thing that a person can do then is, is 
is add gadgets to try and fix the problem, you know, then, you know, throwing the horse even more so out of balance. And so, um, you know, some, so many times uh, we see riders looking for an outcome versus being present with what is and asking the horse one question at a time so it can respond in the way that it, it can respond in that moment. Yes, I'm in balance, I'm able to do this, or no, I'm not in balance, I need some support. Um, but if we can stay really present and you know, just educate ourselves a little bit with, with the whys as to you know, how and why the horse might be responding the way he is, we, we don't have to go into pushing him further and further out of his balance and further into essentially um, increased space activity and fright and flight mode. So, um, yeah, that <laughs> I don't know if it's appropriate to ask this question right now, but there's a question about how the vestibular system interacts with the proprioceptive system. Well, the, the vestibular system interacts, you know, 100% with, with the proprioceptive system, because when you're looking at your vestibular system, your vestibular system is also related to your hyoid apparatus, your TMJ, your atlas occipital area, which is the whole orientation of your equilibrium. And of course that relates to the, the, the sacrum and the pelvis. So when a horse's vestibular system is out of balance, and it's usually because they have some imbalance either that's coming from the foot itself or is specifically coming from a localized area of the of the AO junction, the atlas and the occiput, um, some perhaps some of your suboccipital muscles, your again your TMJ, your hyoid bone. When that system is out of balance, that is part of your proprioceptive system. So that is specifically, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that later, but that will specifically affect um, your horse's your horse's neurologic function. So many horses, and I don't want to get too far off here because we'll get to that, but what I do want to say is it absolutely affects the equilibrium. It affects how they present themselves. Many horses that have vestibular issues look like they may have neurologic issues, and I'll talk about why that is so um, just a little bit later, if that's um, okay. And let me just say, um, Linda, if you watch Jillian Kreimring's um, webinar on the hyoid bone. She's done a really excellent presentation and you get to see how close the inner ear is to this whole TMJ hyoid mechanism. Um, the discussion tonight is not about how to develop weight-bearing posture. I suggest that you go and watch Dr. Raquel Butler's webinar that we did earlier this week. She talks about stretching and strength. Um, this is really a what is it uh, talk tonight as opposed to how to, how to solve it. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that would be a whole nother, that would be a whole week long. Yeah. <laughs> right? Okay. So um, what we're going to do now is we are going to dive in a little bit to um, what these actually are, you know, the, the nerves themselves. I call it nerding on nerves and Ida Hammer, who is just an amazing, amazing uh, teacher and so incredibly knowledgeable. Um, she and I get get working together and we nerd for hours and before we know it, um, you know, the class is still going and it's been 13 or 14 hours. So um, our nerd, and I think there's a lot of people out there that can appreciate that. But um, we're gonna take a look at what these nerves are and how they work and then we're gonna circle back around and see how it relates um, to, to the horse, to, to, to the horse's movement, I should say. So, there's different kinds of mechanoreceptors or different kinds of uh, proprioceptors, but they all have a very common theme. And that common theme is they transmit information 
along what we call afferent, which is incoming nerves to the central nervous system. And I've said that quite a lot, but I will continue to say it again because I think this is really important. Now tonight, we're really only gonna look more at the afferent nerves. We're not gonna look at the efferent, the outgoing, but we know that the outgoing nerve response is your motoric response, but we're just not gonna look at those pathways. So <clears throat> your sensory um, mechanoreceptors are responsible for reflexive responses, which specifically is the stretch response, and what they do is they program voluntary responses to stimuli, which means they integrate it with past responses. So the response that comes in now is now being integrated with a past response. And then the spine is saying, do we need to um, have a reaction based on that previous experience? Or do we have what we call a feed forward response that is gonna interpret different information. So there's two systems working here as, as we are uh, looking at these, these receptors. So in the slide, you'll see this is what we call an articular mechanoreceptor. And the articular receptors are found in all the joints. And I find that absolutely fascinating because if you think about how much I want to say just wear and tear our horse's joints have and how many influences, uh, how many influences there are on the horse's joints. And specifically, the first thing that comes to my mind is the foot and the balance of the foot. Um, you know, if you have, if you have a, a, um, an imbalanced hoof or you have a negative plantar or palmar angle in the hoof or you have a lateral imbalance in the foot, Essentially, all of the organs, even the, or the joints like right on top of that foot are going to be primarily affected, but all of the joints that, that are going further up into the horse's body are going to be strained and torqued. And when we think about that, and we think about the fact that some of your major receptors are in these joints, it really makes us realize that, my goodness, you know, how many horses do have some interference because of joint issues? And the other thing is, you know, how many times does a horse perhaps get a little kick or a niche in a joint, something localized, maybe a little strain, maybe even just a little filling, a little wind puff, or perhaps his, his lymphatic system isn't working correctly and he's not able to drain lymph out of that joint, how much strain is actually on that joint now. So there's so many reasons that we want to really be aware of healthy joints in our horses. And this is just, of course, one of them. So in the um, articular, in the joints, there's four main types of receptors. You don't have to worry about the names, but let's just take a look at you know, what they do. And you're going to see some common themes between all of these. So this first receptor is called a Ruffini receptor. And it, this is in the very superficial layer of the joint capsule. So that means it's closest to the outside. And this receptor actually responds to stretch. So when we talk about stretch, we mean when we're getting to the outer limits of rotation of the joint or, the, or when the outer edge of the capsule gets stretched, this is when this nerve will actually respond. So you get a rotation or a, um, a, 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 some form of movement in that capsule it gets to the out, the capsule gets to the outer edge and hits the outer edge of that joint, and then you get a response from this receptor. Um, 
So this, particularly, this particular receptor responds to stretch and it's what we call um, a low threshold. And what low threshold means is a point must be exceeded in order for that nerve to respond. So it's got to reach a certain point in its stretch in order for this point, this receptor to actually respond. So that's what we call low threshold. Um, it's also slow adapting, which means as long as the stimuli is applied, so, so let's say for example, as long as that stretch is in place, this receptor will respond. But as soon as that stimuli is no longer in place, it stops responding. So what, what you're gonna see throughout these, um, these images is different receptors respond to different pieces. So everybody, it's, it's kind of like having a group of people doing a job and everybody has a different job and then you all come back together and you kind of share all of the pieces that you've done to, to, to create the big picture or to complete the task. So that's what these, um, these receptors are doing right here. Um, so it works, it says it works static and dynamic, which means it works when it's in movement and when it's not in movement. So it, it's working whenever that stretch receptor is activated. So our next receptor is what we call the pisciniform. And this is in the deeper layers of the capsule. So here's our first type one. And now we're going deeper into that joint capsule. And the, the pisciniforms are Pisciniforms are also found in like fat pads. So every joint has an area of articular fat surrounding it, a fat pad to protect it. So you also find some of these in the fat pads. And of course, across the board, I'm gonna say you have receptors through your fascial system. So um, this one responds to compression, which is the same as the receptors in the foot. Again, this is a low threshold, the same as the other one. And this is dynamic in motion in nature. So this will only work in motion. This receptor kind of is sleeping until motion happens. The third receptor we find in the joint is what we call the Golgi tendon organ, which we're gonna talk extensively about when it comes to muscles. And this is in the tendon and the ligament around the joint. So this is right in the middle here. And this responds to active tension. So when there is a stretch, this Golgi tendon organ um, contracts and gets tensile. And it's the tension in this, in, this little, um, in this little receptor or organ, if you will, that creates the, the, the motion. Um, it's, it's response to active tension. So it's, as soon as there's any kind of activity and there's a tension that happens, so a contraction, any, any slight contraction, this little tendon will respond to. Now what you'll see here is this is the first high threshold um, that we have, which means it will respond as soon as there's activity. So when we look at these other two, low threshold, it means that a point has to be reached in order for these to respond. When you have high threshold, it means it's gonna respond immediately. So for example, this is gonna respond immediately, it, it notices tension. So that's what high th threshold means. It's, it's an immediate um, response. And slow adapting, again, means it requires quite a lot of stretch for this guy to activate. And he's dynamic in nature, so again, movement. And then the fourth type of receptor we have is, is, is what we call the free nerve ending. And I mentioned that earlier on as the noci receptor. 
and they are pain receptors. So they are, they respond only to pain and inflammation. And you see these receptors um, or these nerve endings, I should say, through the fibrous portion of all of the joint capsules. So this is the guy, this little free nerve ending, also called an OC receptor, that if you sprain your ankle or the horse sprains his ankle, this is the little guy that immediately with his high threshold sends a signal to the brain saying, oh my gosh, pain, you send, you know, send a pain signal to that area, stop this horse moving, stop, you know, stop any further activity of that joint, let's contract the muscles, let's inflame the tissue, let's just protect this area. So um, that's what we mean by high threshold. Um, it, it, when it says it is, does not adapt, it means it does not adapt to anything new. It only responds to the same stimuli every single time. So this only responds to pain. It doesn't adapt and respond to anything else. So in summary, um, for this articular, for this joint receptor, what happens is it transmits incoming information about the position of the joint in space and time. And it also adds, is this joint loaded? Is it unloaded? Is, is there compression in this joint? Is there pain? And these respond, these receptors respond to rotation. They respond to torsion in the joint capsule, and they respond to just general range of motion capacity in a normal gait, walk, trot, canter, gallop, jump. So um, that's a little bit on the receptors that we find in our joints. We have one question I think it's appropriate here. Yeah. Are the four types of receptors in every joint or is it dependent on the type of joint? Most, almost every joint. And I, I, they're not in every joint, but most joints carry these receptors. Well, and the interesting thing is that um, from Bob's work, Bob Bowker's work, with yeah. uh, Feeney and I call them Piscinian receptors in the foot, which yeah. is not necessarily related to a joint because the Raffini are along just under the sole and the Piscinian are in the heel bulb. So, um, correct. So these receptors, as I said earlier, these receptors you find in all er many areas of the foot, you'll find some similar receptors of this in the skin. We find them in the foot. We find them in organs, in the visceral system as well. Um, and we find them in muscles. So there's these receptors don't just show up in the joints. They are they're they're a commonality. Thank you for adding that, Wendy. Yes, absolutely. They're a commonality in the body. So you find a pisciniform in the foot that will that's the receptor in the foot that responds to the compression. Right. Um, you know, the Raffini receptor in the in the foot responds to stretch. So um, yes. Thanks. Thank you for adding that because they are all over. Those same receptors are all over. And so if you want to know more about that in the foot, just go watch Robert Bowker's two webinars. We are going to have him back for a third. He's still, um, the power failure that he had from the storm was really huge and knocked out a lot of stuff. So we'll get him back. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, he's amazing and, and such a wealth of information. So yeah, is, is, shall I go on, Wendy? Any more questions? Are we good with that? Um, can, can one of the receptors have memory because muscles have memory? Well, that's an interesting uh, statement in itself. Do you want to handle that one? So say it again, please. Um, uh, hang on. It, basically, the person is uh, questioning whether the nerves have memory because muscles have memory, but I would take 
uh, into question whether or not muscles actually have memory. Yeah, so some of the, the muscle itself doesn't have the memory, it's the receptors that carry the memory. And that's where your feed, your um, feedback and your feed forward loops come in. So um, the receptors, the receptors themselves don't have a memory, but the information gets sent to the spinal cord and the feedback feed forward nerves are the ones that can carry the information and the memory about what happens in space and time. So if you have, if you have a, um, like let's say a free nerve ending that does not adapt, that will never have memory. It's just gonna react and respond to pain and, and the threshold of information, inflammation and pain. So that is not gonna carry memory. But none of these actually have memory because they're, they're actually primer, primary functionality is to respond or react to what is in space and time at that moment. Does that make sense? Yes, and if you wanna, if anybody wants to understand more about um, the concept of pain and memory, I would highly recommend um, David Butler's work. He's um, in Sydney, Australia at a university and it's Noe Group, N-O-I Group. I think it's .com, might be .org, Noe Group. Um, Noe for nociceptor. And he works with people with chronic pain, does a lot of research. He's got some great books. One is called Explain Pain. And he goes through, um, basically they're working with people with chronic pain and how they can overcome chronic pain. Wow. And the bottom line is the memory's in your mind. It's in your yeah, head, sorry, exactly. it's, in your brain. it's exactly. not in the muscle. Correct. Uh, Correct. And that would be true for the horse as well, that these are simply receptors that are sending information. They're sort of, they're the messengers, they're not the message. Correct, absolutely, absolutely. And, and um, yeah. And, I'll mention something else on that in a little bit later on the slide, but yeah, thank you for that, Wendy. That's a, that's a really great question. So the next receptors we're going to look at are the, the receptors of the skin. And these, just like I said, you know, all of these receptors work together. You know, the skin ones work with the joint ones, work with the feet ones, work with the organs. So they all work together. And I'm just choosing, I've kind of taken a block of four that, that, um, that are, no more important than the others, but are really related to, to our writing. So um, the skin receptors, they're just, they're, they're such an interesting, um, gosh, they're so interesting to me because they have all the same stimuli, but it's also extraordinarily different and gives even these same receptors give different information out. So if we look at the first, um, the first receptor that we're going to check in with today, that's what we call the, the Meisner corpuscle. And this is located in the skin of your horse. So right in the skin, in the derma body. And this responds to touch. Now, um, that's, the, that's the receptor that if you put your finger on your horse or your horse you know, flinches if you touch him, that's the receptor that is giving information back about that touch stimuli. Now, these receptors have what you call a low threshold, which means the longer there's pressure on that skin, the more the nerve adapts. So if you've ever um, put your finger on a horse or touched a horse and he has an immediate response, his skin kind of twitches a little bit, and you keep that hand there very gently, what you'll notice is it just settles down. It adapts to that sensation. So that sensory nerve no longer has to have that, that react, reaction. So um, that, that corpuscle adapts to, uh, is fast adapting. 
so it um it, it responds immediately and it's dynamic in, na in nature, which means it requires a little bit more movement in order for, for it to be stimulated. So you, you might, um, you know, you don't just see your horse's skin quivering without being, there being some input. You have to touch it, you see a fly touch it, whatever that is. So it, it's fast adapting when there's a response. So then you have another, uh, corpuscle, which is called the Pacinian corpuscle. This is located in the subcutaneous tissue, which is pretty close to the surface of the skin. If you've ever given a, a subcutaneous um, little injection, you know you just have to go underneath that skin derma body. Um, and it's also located in the interosseous membranes. And what those are, are they're really thick, dense fiber sheets of fascia that span space between two bones. So if you've got a couple of bones, right, sitting next to each other, it's there are spans of fascia, the, the interosseous membranes, the spans of fascia that are between them. And you have a lot of um, Pacinian corpuscles proprioceptors in that, in that fascia. These are also in the organs. And I mentioned earlier that you have lots of uh, proprioceptors in your viscera. So these are some of them that actually are in the body of the organs. So these little guys, these respond to deep pressure and vibration. So, you know, if you're actually massaging or you've got any kind of vibrational device on your horse, that's what you're gonna see actually um, respond. And these are again low threshold they're slow adapting they're dynamic and you can actually see there's there's a pattern with with many of these you get a few that are low threshold some that are high um, some that are slow adapting some that are you know faster adapting so um, they all have to support one another with their function um, just just to reiterate the difference between a fast adapting and a slow adapting okay so the fast adapting is immediately it responds to whatever the the stimuli is slow adapting is is it means you have to kind of exceed exceed a level so for example if you take a joint okay a soon a fast adapting would be as soon as there is a, a response stimuli that response in that joint that nerve adapts immediately if it's a fast adapting nerve. It's, it's a slow adapting. It's kind of, oh, it's sleeping by the pool, having a beer, whatever. And it's waiting for that joint to stretch and exceed a certain point at which time the nerves wake up and say, hey guys, we gotta go do something here. Okay. But that's a little slow. It's a little slower to wake up. So that's what that means, yeah. Which incidentally is why um, I know a lot of my students love, um, love this is, I do a lot of work with what we call the side of ease, side of barrier. So, you know, when you're working with a side of ease on a horse, it's a side where it's easier for that horse to reach a particular position where he can have his lateral flexion might be easier in that position or he has more yield. Perhaps on the other direction, it's a little bit more difficult for what could be many, many reasons. But in order to support the horse, if you take him to the side of ease first, where his body doesn't have to react to any additional stimuli or any pain receptors, the body can just kind of go into this parasympathetic response of, oh yeah, this is okay, I can move my head in this direction, my muscles feel, feel like they can stretch and adapt correctly, everything, everything feels good, I'm balanced and I feel safe. 
So what happens then is all of the nerves that, that, that were kind of on guard waiting for the, the body to go in the other direction where it didn't feel so safe, they're all just now taking a nap because they're not being induced. They're, they're not, they're not, they don't have to adapt to any other stimuli. So if you hold the body for 30 seconds in the side of ease, and then you very slowly take that joint, take that articular surface, maybe just take the head over into a lateral flexion in the other direction that was originally blocked. What you'll find is the horse has more range of motion in that direction because the stimuli are not present at that moment because you've gone to a side of ease. So that's a really, that's a really wonderful um, exercise to use. And I, I really do believe fully that, you know, how we teach Wendy that, you know, you'll, you'll want to, warm your horse up or ride him in the side that's a little bit more comfortable to him first. If it's easier to go right or canter right, pick up your right knee canter first. That's going along those same principles of, you know, letting the stimuli adapt to what feels safe. And then you just going into the side of barrier where you don't have that immediate um, reaction of those, those, those pain receptors or those other deep pressure receptors that are saying, oh my gosh, something doesn't feel safe here. And by the time you've actually taken the body to the direction where perhaps it was a little stuck or immobile or tight before, if you've done your side of ease, side of barrier work, and you've stayed in your side of ease for 30 seconds, you can usually take that that the, say, say, let's just say the AO joint and ask him to just move his head to the, to the opposite side, which was originally um, a little uncomfortable and you won't have that same response. And that actually breaks that cycle. So you're doing a lot of neurological repatterning. So, it's a classic Feldenkrais uh, technique. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Dr. Feldenkrais always would go to the easy side and make the easy side even easier before yeah. he went to the side that was difficult. That's awesome, yes, awesome. So. Um, Anyway, going through going through these, these are these are re relatively straightforward as far as we got lots of stretch responses here. We got responders to touch and pressure. We've got a lot of low threshold um, here, which means again, the longer you touch or keep the pressure on the skin, the more the nerve will adapt. So we've got one high threshold here, which means as soon as you touch it, it's going to respond. But as you'll see as a theme for the free nerve endings anything that is a free nerve ending that responds to pain is actually going to um, respond immediately, obviously for safety reasons. So um, we have a question, but I think I'm gonna ask it in a more general way. Um, if you're doing any kind of a therapy or treatment, whether that's massage, whether that's using equipment, you are affecting all of these receptors, right? Absolutely, yes, absolutely. And so that's the beauty of, of, of doing body work. Absolutely it is. And, and, and not only just body work, but groundwork and in hand work, mm -hmm. you know, because if we think about the old traditional classical ways and, you know, I'm, 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 I come from the place of, I've done a lot of things wrong with horses and ridden, ridden incorrectly without knowing the damage that I was potentially doing, you know, when I was in my twenties and thirties and, and just, I just didn't know. And I was following riding with trainers that, that they meant well, but you know, a lot of this knowledge isn't shared. And I think that's, that's, that's what's so exciting about our industry now is we're, we're really getting to share more information so that we can really support our horses with form and function and, and their motion patterns. Um, 
Well, and we're, we're finally crossed the barrier where we recognize that we are also an animal and that the yeah. systems that we have, horses also have. There are some variations on that theme, like the hoof is a very specialized structure, but muscles are muscles and nerves are nerves and a spinal cord and a brain and bones. And so as we, we're finally recognizing that we can take the knowledge and information that we've had for a long time in the human world and apply it and therefore apply it to our training. Yes, absolutely, Wendy. And so having said that, I mean, you, talking about Feldenkrais, you know, doing body work on our horse, but then being able to, to implement those, those teachings of what we've learned about the human body and presenting that to the horse for groundwork and then transitioning into in-hand work to support that system in a completely different way. I mean, that, that's, I, I, I feel like that is fundamental in the work that we are all doing today. Um, yeah. Because getting the gone are the days when you people are getting on horses and warming them up in traditional ways. I mean, we need to do that more on the ground to support these muscles, to support the proprioceptors and the sensory ner nerves, so that we're not actually creating contraction and, and sympathetic responses before we even get on the horse, because perhaps the horse already has a little asymmetry or tension pattern through a particular muscle or an atrophy. So if you're doing groundwork or in handwork, I mean, of course, as well as body work, but I'm just adding and taking it to a different level. You're already assimilating some different input into that body before you get on that horse. And I just think it's really wonderful that, that we're moving in that direction. Mm -hmm. So within, um, we're looking at the muscle receptor stretch reflex right now. And um, this is what, what we call the muscle spindle and the Golgi tendon organ, which actually sit inside a muscle. So within every muscle, there are two receptors. This is a receptor, the muscle spindle, and this is your other receptor, the GTO, the Golgi tendon organ. Now inside the muscle spindle, there's two fibers. There's like an interfusal and an extrafusal. And um, this complex system, which is quite complex, actually deals with the change in length and the rate of length of the muscle. So for example, how much stretch there is in that muscle and the time it actually takes for that muscle to stretch that much. So that essentially is the job of the muscle spindle. And then um, this is of course really important for body position and joint position and determining the horse's body's response or the human body response to putting itself in a correct position in order to deal with something, a terrain or something else. So um, we'll look a little bit about how this complex system works. Um, and it is, it, is, it, it is a complex system, but to explain it, I'm going to keep it really, really quite simple. The first hey, thing can I, can I interrupt you for one sec? Your microphone is really, I think, close to your touchpad. Okay. Um, so, so sometimes just, just um, we get a lot of static when you're, and, the, and your volume changes. And I'm not sure why your volume changes. Okay. Um, and I, I'm just pointing it out because I keep adjusting the volume, um, but I'm not sure how that's happening. Okay. I don't either. So, um, okay. I'm not sure what to do about that, but no, no, I just, know, it, it sounds like you have a piece of paper near your mic. Oh, actually I do have, I do have a few notes right here just to keep ah, Maybe just move them away from the computer itself because it, it, that's what it sounds like. It sounds like something rubbing on the mic. Gotcha. Okay. 
Awesome. Maybe that would be better. Yeah. I tend to go off track. So I'm like, okay, stay off track. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's great. It's just, I, I just couldn't figure out what was going on, but if the papers are near the mic, that would explain everything. Okay. Very good. All right. Thank you. Yep. All right. So, um, what are we going to just, Sorry, I, I, I off-tracked you. We're on Golgi tendon organs. No, you're fine. Well, we're going to, before I talk about the Golgi tendon organ, what I want you to think about right now is either your horse or a horse you have. And this particular system that I'm going to talk about is present in every muscle in the horse's body. How many of our horses are asymmetrical? All of them. There's not a symmetrical horse out there. I mean, there just isn't. It's not possible. But does your particular horse have an area where he might be more restricted than other areas? Does he have an area perhaps over his back, over his loins, where he's not fully able to stretch through that dorsal muscular ligament system? Um, is there an area perhaps in his neck where perhaps he's, he's, he's able to give you more of a flexion or a side bend left and not so much right? The reason I'm asking you to think about this right now is this system, because it's all in all of the organs, all in the muscles, anytime you've got a muscle that cannot stretch, contract and relax the way it should, you're affecting the proprioceptors in that particular muscle. So I just want us to just kind of have that in the back of our head as, I, as I'm going through this, because I think it's, it, it just makes you think perhaps about some, um, some motion capabilities or lack of ability that perhaps your horse has in doing certain exercises or movements that you're asking him to do. So here we have basically the muscle. I've drawn a muscle here. Now, essentially this whole system is just working with one muscle, but I've drawn two other muscles because I don't want to overload and make, make it look so super messy. So every time I go from one segment of the muscle to the section of the spinal cord and then back out, essentially it's all going to the same muscle. So this action is happening in one muscle. So how does the system work? Well, first of all, what happens is there is a stretch and it's usually a quick stretch. And that stretch activates the muscle spindle, which sits inside the muscle. So anytime there is a quick stretch, there's an activation of the spindle, which sends an impulse to a segment of the spinal cord. So here's your spinal cord. So once that, once that impulse, that incoming impulse to the spinal cord reaches the spinal cord, the spinal cord then has to figure out, what do I do with this information? Well, because it's a muscle, the impulse is processed and the spinal cord returns the impulse back to the muscle to say, oh, we need to give you a concentric retraction, contraction. This is how muscles contract and relax. So an impulse then goes back out from the spinal cord to that same muscle and contracts the muscle. When that same muscle contracts, what that does is it creates tension in what we call this little um, Goji tendon organ, which is an inhibitory re um, receptor. So anytime you get a stretch in any muscle, you create tension in the Goji tension, in the Goji tendon organ. So here is our muscle now contracted. And here is our contraction, attention in the Goji tendon organ. So the Goji tendon organ then sends an impulse back to the spinal cord saying, okay, I am tense, the muscles contracted, 
And then what happens is that response goes to the spinal cord. It does what it needs to do with that impulse and sends the nerve back to that same exact muscle and relaxes it. And ultimately that is a cycle of contraction and relaxation in a muscle. So it's reasonably straightforward. The Goji tendon organ, as I say, is inhibitory, whereas the actual muscle spindle itself is excitatory. So an excitatory response is gonna be, oh my gosh, we're gonna contract. And the other one, the, the inhibitory response is, oh my gosh, we have to shut everything down. We have to change this and bring it back to the relaxation. So that is the, that is the cycle of um, the, the, the muscle spindle and the Goji tendon organ. Now, this is a very important proprioceptive um, stimuli, if you will, because it is a loop system that immediately gives information to the spine and tells the spine where this muscle is in time and space relative to the movement, the terrain, and the posture of the horse, and what that muscle has to do in order to stay safe, to support the structures around it, to connect with the ligaments and tendons, and keep this body functioning up on four legs, moving, standing, dealing with you know the the terrain uh, you know however it is um, you know responding and reacting to a a hole in the ground that's why horses can like just see a hole and immediately move and you're already in the hole yourself so this is the system that actually is incredibly important to us um, as riders because how many times when we're riding do we create or do we have contraction patterns in our horses bodies or do we have what we call reversed insertion and origin patterns in the muscle complex what do I mean by that? A muscle has, muscles have primary jobs. So let's just take a general overall look at the, the dorsal and the ventral muscles of your horse's body. So if we think about the dorsal muscle system, which is the muscle system above the spinal vertebrae, and that system is a passive system in that it needs to be in relaxation in order for locomotion to happen. It works in hand with your ventral system, which is the system that runs underneath your horse's torso, underneath his, underneath the the, um, the spinal the, the verte spinal vertebrae, and that system is your postural system. So that is saying, hey, we need to engage all of these core muscles to be able to support the posture of this horse. Now these two work together. Now, if you think about these two working together, you're going to have contraction in the, in, the, in the ventral muscles and you're going to have extension and passivity in the dorsal muscles, which means different impulses are going back and forth from the spinal cord at different moments in time. Now, if you have a horse that doesn't have correct posture, whether he's ridden incorrectly, whether he's been injured and hasn't been rehabbed correctly, whether he's so asymmetrical and in such compensation patterns that it is not possible for his muscular system at this point to um, regenerate those correct muscles. Whatever the reason, if you have a horse that is not using his muscular system correctly, this feedback loop is going to be inhibited. And so he is not going to be so quote unquote quick on his feet. He's not going to be able to respond as quickly to stimuli that are presented within his environment, underneath his feet, 
Um, he may show signs of perhaps imbalance in his body. He may even show neurologic signs. Um, but when this system, the system can be easily compromised because of compression, asymmetry, atrophy, and you know, injury. injuries, absolutely, and muscle issues. So, so out of curiosity, how fast does the nerve impulse travel from the muscle spindle to the central nervous system and back? You know, it's a good question, Wendy. I cannot tell you the exact how many it's microseconds that is. It's literally microseconds because this all happens in the flash. Right. You know, it's interesting to think about it, isn't it? And that's why that's such a good point to bring up, Wendy, because that's why, that's why if we've got some, you know, pathology or we've got some inhibitory responses through our mechanical or biomechanical system, um, this is, th that response is going to be inhibited. So that microsecond is no longer a microsecond and the information maybe isn't going to reach the pathway that it should or, you know, all kinds of variants. But yeah, I don't know the exact, that's a really good question. I need to look that up. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing is that, you know, we're talking about this sort of in what would be lifetimes for the nervous system. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, and, and literally, we think this happens every moment. I mean, every single moment, this is happening. It's not just about the unbelievable timing that a horse has coming down to a five-star jump, you know, right. cross-country course at speed, and that this all has to work perfectly to make sure that the horse clears the jump with the rider lands correctly and gallops on you start to recognize how exquisite this is how uh just I, that's the only word i can think of whether it's a person watching you know like on facebook sometimes there's the uh, a dancer or an art performance and you watch these people or cirque du soleil i've loved i love to go see cirque du soleil and then you realize that this is happening at the, at the speed of light, probably, and um, I don't even know, but so fast that we see what we see is an elegant performance because Absolutely. it's all coordinated. Absolutely. And I, you know, that's such a, that is, that is such a great point because remember we said at the very beginning is, you know, we don't think about these things. We just think we, what, what tends to happen is we think about the outcome, what we're going out to, to do, what we want from our horse, you know, the, the dressage or the jump or whatever it is. We don't think about all, as you said, the finely orchestrated elements of the entire nervous system, the musculoskeletal system, the mechanical, the emotional system, what, what, I mean, what the brain's doing through all this, you know, it's just unbelievable to me. It's a lifelong journey of, of learning and, and maybe just understanding the little bit that I can. But yeah, when you think about it, it's exquisite. And that's why bringing this type of topic to people's attention is really important because we don't think about it. And yet this is something that happens every single millisecond of your horses and, you know, your interaction with your horse. So basically... Um, what happens with all of this information is it is organized. The body takes all of this information from the joints, the skin, the muscles, the tendons, the fascia, the feet, and all of it is analyzed 
and looked at within the variables of what all the nerves do. So, you know, some of them look at stretch, some of them look, look at temperature, pain, body position, and movement. And then what, what happens is it takes all this information, it looks at the task at hand, it looks at the environment, it looks at how fast this horse is moving or, um, you know, posturally where he is in that absolute moment. And it, it determines the most appropriate response for that task at hand. And again, milliseconds. And it then determines how do we respond with a motoric, with a motoric response. So an outgoing response that is now a motor response that is going to orchestrate the movement of the horse's body in time and space. So this information gets organized in relationship to what we call a feedback or a feed forward system. So these are the two systems that are, gen that are primarily used for, um, for movement and proprioceptive information. So the feedback system uses previous experiences to determine how to respond. So these previous experiences are also related to something called the central programming generators. And this is, I'm gonna talk a little bit about the CPGs in a second. So I'm gonna put that aside. But when we talk about um, a feedback loop and previous experiences is there's pathways that are formulated from the time a horse gets up on his feet um, that begin to, to create neural responses about movement. So a foal gets up and he moves around and he walks and he learns to move with his mom or and he runs. And all of the time, these, these, this feedback from his movement patterns is being recorded through this feedback system and through nerves called central program generators. So that is one way that information, proprioceptive information comes out in a motoric form to inform the body what to do. And then the other way is what we call a feed forward system. And that's a system that doesn't kind of kick into place until after the task has happened. So for example, the horse might pick up his foot to begin the first aspect of that, of that stance, of that, of that gait. Um, and what happens then is the body adapts or the, the nerves adapt and the information is adapted while the horse is in motion, altering any kind of movement or activation based on constant sensory feedback, feedback that it's getting from the system. So you have two systems at play here. You've got a feedback that's moving, creating movement based on previous experiences and a feed forward that is responding to the movement in time and space as it's happening and as it's taking in new information from the stimuli um, in, in the present moment. So these are the two systems that are essentially... So so as an example, it would be like, I, I learned how to ride a bike, so I know how to ride a bike. So my feedback is that I know how to ride a bike, Correct. but I haven't ridden a bike in a long time and I get on one that's different than what I learned on. And now I have to be in real time sorting out, wait, I have more gears, my brakes in a different place, my handlebars steer a little differently. So that's my feed forward. It's like, I know how to do this, but I don't know how to do this one. 
Yeah, that's that's a really great example of it. And another one to add to your analogy of it is, you know, you you may you you rode a you rode a bike and maybe you went out on your bike today, but tomorrow you go out on your bike and you are actually over you're going over different terrain and there's a pothole. And so your feed forward stimuli is like, oh, we have to respond to that pothole. Or um, you know maybe your foot falls off the stirrup of your um, of your bike, and now you've got to like oh I got to rebalance and readapt and keep myself in time and space. So all of those things. So yeah, the external as well as the internal. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we're coming towards the end. I and I don't have a clue what time it is. Oh my god! Don't worry about it. Just keep okay. going. Don't look okay. at the clock. Okay, fine. All right. So we have some areas of the horse that are more highly sensitive. So we call them highly sensitive proprioceptive areas. So more, more sensitive than perhaps the others. And just want to, you know, mention a couple of these to you. So um, one of them is the cervical spine. And the cervical spine has mechanoreceptors, not only in the deep flexor and extensor muscles of the neck, but it also has it in the facet joints, which are the joints which help each of the cervical vertebrae articulate together. So in each of the articulations of that cervical vertebrae are mechanoreceptors. So that's, re, you know, that's such an intricate system that's actually giving us information about where each of these segments of the spine and the vertebrae are in space and time as well, which is why it is so incredibly detrimental to a horse and to his nervous system to force a head in a position, whether it's with your hands, whether it's with a device, whether it's with any kind of Mardi Gale or gadget, because you can actually really damage these receptors by compressing um, these vertebrae. So it's, it's, uh, that's, a, that's not a good thing to do. Um, the other thing that I'm actually gonna talk about with the neck is a very interesting, um, an, an interesting topic, and, and this was actually, I, I, read, the, I read about this from a, a veterinarian in Great Britain. And this is the, the effect of um, a mimic of neurologic symptoms in a horse that really are not truly neurologic because of asymmetry in his neck and in the muscles of his neck, particularly the suboccipital muscles of the neck. So you notice like an asymmetry or an atrophy in these muscles. So first of all, why would we get asymmetry and atrophy up there? Well, we touched on it a little earlier because we have, this is such a, this is a huge balancing mechanism in the horse. And, you know, when a horse is out of balance, there's so many reasons he can be out of balance. First of all, he can be out of balance because his feet are painful or his feet are not in correct balance. And so you've got this whole fascial line, which comes from the ligaments and, and the capsules of the feet. So this fascial line will then activate other fascial restrictions through the body if the feet are out of balance. And it puts an incredible strain on both the neck and the atlas occipital area, as well as your sacrum and your pelvis, because if the feet are out of balance, the rest, the rest of the body, particularly the, um, the sacrum and the pelvis, where your parasympathetic system sits and your brainstem, so you're talking about your atlas occipital region, they are constantly looking to redefine what balance is, what safety is. They, you find the pelvis, when there's that fascial strain, you can get all kinds of instabilities and destabilizations in the spine, which then can cause um, 
compensation patterns through the horse's suboccipital area because he doesn't know where he is in space and time. So he's contracting in these suboccipital muscles, which then prevent the elasticity and the, the, the ref, re, reflex of relaxation and stretch through the neck. So remember we said, that the proprioceptors are going to respond to stretch in the muscles. If you don't get a stretch in the muscle because you've got a compensation pattern that's causing contraction, then you're not going to get proprioception, or at least you're going to get inhibited proprioception. So this study that um, this, this vet did in the UK was actually because he was treating a horse that, um, that presented with wobbler syndrome, which is... It, just in case you don't know, that's when you've got some cervical restriction that's actually potentially putting pressure on the spinal cord itself and causing neurological um, patterning. And it's very dangerous um, because, it, you know, any time that you have a vertebrae so close to the spine, um, you, you could drop, that horse could drop at any point in time. So they went in and they did x-rays of this horse's neck and they did CAT scans and so forth. And he was very much expecting to find this kind of pathology. And they found absolutely nothing whatsoever. And what he studied and what he looked at was the muscular development of that horse's, basically his suboccipitals, but also going into the splenius muscle. And there was such atrophy through those muscles that it was the atrophy through the muscles that that were preventing the stretch receptors from giving off correct proprioceptive information and therefore not informing the body of where it was in time and space. Now, isn't that unbelievable? I mean, to me, I was just blown away because it may, I, I just, to me, the neck is just so fascinating, but it made so much sense to me because that is one of the first places where a horse will go into contraction and restriction just to compensate from overall body balance. And it's the place that we attach to with a halter. Absolutely. You know, yes. yes. Uh, I've watched people think nothing of, of and, you know, and to be honest, I've done it myself in the past, you yeah. know, slamming on a lead shank and, you know, with a difficult horse. Um, you know, I think, I, I don't think there's a horse person alive that can say that they've never done that. Or if they haven't, they haven't handled a lot of difficult horses, but, you know, but, at this, but my point being, you know, this is how we handle a horse. We put something on their head and then things that, you know, just as simple as tying a horse and having it pull back. Yes, absolutely. And, and you're, you're right, you know, without, having an understanding or an awareness of what we're doing to that little foal when we first put that halter on his head right then, you know, when he pulls back and you pull and then, yeah, we've all done it. And with riding, I, I mean, I hate to think how many times in my past I have pulled on a horse's mouth because I didn't know any better, you know? Um, I certainly don't do that anymore. And, you know, I'm see you're, we're, seeking, we're seeking longitudinal flexion and extension and reciprocation and lightness. But not everybody still out in the world is, is riding that way. And it just is, um, to see the devices that are put on these horses, um, it, it just actually, it just breaks my heart because you know below the surface what's actually happening. You have an understanding and appreciation of, of the systems you're affecting. And then, you know, these horses get labeled as bad horses because they're having pain and discomfort. They don't feel safe. Their sympathetic system is increased. They don't know where they are in time and space. So let's tie their head down to help him find where he is in time. You know, I mean, it's just such a destructive cycle that we see. 
Um, but these, the, the neck is really uh, so important. And um, you know, again, it's really interesting. I had, I had a guest on actually very early on. His name is Sean Patrick. And he's a oh, yeah. yeah. And so I was, I was teaching down at Sean's place and um, I gave him a Feldenkrais lesson. And, and the lesson I gave him um, at the end, I, I had him on all fours and I was working through his spine from his head. And you know, like I was just in my Feldenkrais mode and wasn't, you know, I was just going along and doing what I do. But afterward, his comment was so profound that I've never forgotten it. And he, I, I'm not going to get the words exact, but the meaning was that I had a hold of his head and what that felt like to have someone have control of his head mm. changed how he viewed how he controls a horse's head. Mm. You know, like if you just imagine somebody come up and putting a halter and pulling your head around, mm -hmm. you know, and then we think nothing of doing that with a horse because it's a big, strong animal. But if it's, if there is a weakness in there, if there is a lack of development, if there is an imbalance, then, you know, what kind of additional damage are we doing unconsciously and, and with many names on it, okay? I mean, and that's the thing, with many names on it, with many disciplines, um, and I'm not trying to lay blame on anyone because I've been there and I've done it too. All right. And I'm the first one to say that I can't cast any stones. Um, but you know, the thing is what we have to do is learn from our experiences and understand that we want to make choose to do it differently now. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, totally. And, and I think just again, you know, when we, when you're educate, when you, when you start educating yourself, when we all learn more and we understand the connections and the, and the influence we are having on these horses, then we can make different choices. So, you know, knowledge is essential to, to being the best that we can be for our horses. And, and just, you know, simple understandings, like the, like you said earlier, Jillian Kreinbring's um, she's a great friend and colleague of mine and her lecture on understanding the hyoid and the effects of the hyoid and the TMJ on the equilibrium and the balance, the, the, the proprioceptive system and your vestibular system. And the thing is we don't, when you touch a horse's head, you are influencing a multitude of nerve endings, which go all the way through his spine to his hindquarters. I mean, you can, if you lightly ask a horse for a lateral flexion, you can actually see that lateral flexion going all the way through the spine to his sacrum area. You know, that's where, that's where side bend, that's where bend begins. Or I shouldn't say that's where it begins because it begins in the middle, but you yeah, have exactly. to, yeah, but you have to facilitate a lateral flexion to be able to release the balance and the equilibrium system in order for the horse to actually find the middle to release and find a balance. So it's understanding some of these things and recognizing like, you know, your occiput is a mirror to what's going in the hindquarters. So if you have a restriction up here, whether it's a muscular restriction, which eventually causes perhaps immobility at the atlas or occiput or any of those C1, C2 through C3 um, junction joints, you are going to have the exact same dysfunction happening in the hindquarters because they're mirrors. Um, understanding of the effect of how you have a connection between the atlas occiput, your TMJ, your hyoid, all the way down to your sternum, and then all the way through 
what we call the linear alba fascia to the pubic bone. So now you have a knowledge that, wait, my hyoid bone and my TMJ and my atlas is attached to my pubic bone and I'm a quadruped and I'm in this asymmetrical pattern. You just have to think about the, the, the mechanical strain, the, the muscular strain of the, of the body, as well as the fascial strain that's happening throughout that body um, reversing, as we said earlier, perhaps contraction where they should be relaxation and just reversing muscle insertion points and completely changing the horse's equilibrium, changing his proprioception. And then we go in and we say, well, he did it yesterday or he did it last week. He's just not behaving himself or he doesn't want to do it today. And a horse does not have the capacity to do that from an emotional standpoint. Their neocortex cannot kind of he doesn't have a neocortex. I mean, he has, I think he it's like some. A, milli, a millimeter of a, a millimeter. Yeah. Compared to us, he has none. Yes, but enough to do the things that it needs to do. Yes, absolutely. But not enough to have defense physiology like we do, which is completely... Well, but I was going to bring up the point that the body will defend itself. And if the body feels threatened, it is going to stiffen and resist to protect. We yeah, all do absolutely. it, horses do it, you know, like I'll be working with a student, I'll put my hands on that shot. I haven't, don't know how I'm going to do that anymore, but you know, I put my hands on yeah. a student, I can feel the resistance and it's like, you know, I need to stop and, and talk to them for a minute because their, their, their mind is, you know, they're saying, yeah, it's fine. You can do what, you know, move my leg, but their body's saying, I'm not going to allow you to do anything. And that's on, not on a conscious level. That's on a unconscious level the body will defend and so the horse's body will defend itself against some of the things that we do but the question is at what cost yeah and the cost is inability to to perform inability to move inability to actually do what we want him to do because he's too busy defending against what is happening Right. And, and that's exactly right. But the, the, the thing I was, I was mentioning is it's not like a psychological thing like we do. Like, I'm just not going to do that for that person. I don't want to. It's not so much an emotional, you know, psychological response of a storyline. I don't want to do that to her. I want to, I want to do it my way. It's, it's more of a neurologic sympathetic response of defense. Vegas. Vegas is going to say, I'm not safe. Yes, yes exactly. Vagal nerve is going to say, sorry, not safe then it goes into its defense mechanism. Their defense mechanism is not, as, not an emotional one because they don't have that thinking brain to actually make up a story to say, hey, you, <laughs> I, don't want to, um, I don't want to do that to, I don't want to do that today. I don't want to, um, you know, I think I'm just gonna push you around today. They're not intentionally doing that. It's not an intentional thing. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, there's, it's, um, it, I always tell people that, you know, um, where's my phone? Oh, it's right there. It's because um, I have Facebook on it. But, you know, I have an iWatch. Like, I watched Star Trek and they had communicate. I watched Dick Tracy and now we have them. I don't see a single horse that's created an iPhone, an iWatch. Or, they don't have the capacity to imagine and create in the way that we do. That's what our our neocortex does. Neocortex does yes. Um, but at the same time, the downside of our neocortex is we make up these incredible fantasies about why our horse is doing something. Right. And that's case in point. We make up, we, we call that in, in our psychology work is like defense physiology. We make up these stories based on past experiences or things that we've heard or learned 
that are not real and not true, or we make up a story and relate it to our horse. So as similar as we are in so many ways, we put our storyline on our horse and that is not his story at all. His body is reacting to his sympathetic response, his vagal response. And it's not like he's saying, screw you and giving you the hoof type of thing. You know, he's not emotionally doing that. Um, so, you know, I, I feel like I, I hear a lot of people saying, well, he's just this, he's just that, or, you know, he's not respecting me, or he's, a horse doesn't have the capacity to actually do that. So, right. You know, and that's where, you know, I've had two webinars with Dr. Stephen Peters, who's the human neuropsychologist that wrote Evidence-Based Horsemanship. And I highly recommend everybody that has been watching this webinar to go back and watch his webinars because he, he specifically addresses these things of what parts of the brain the horse has, what is the function of the parts of the brain the horse has, what, given the parts of the brain, how is this gonna play out and what cannot happen? And yeah. what cannot happen is a horse doesn't make a story. Do they have memory? Absolutely. Do they remember situations and people and things that, absolutely. Do they have PTSD because of the amygdala? Absolutely. absolutely. But yeah. they're motor-based, creatures yes. and there's just a little bit of frontal lobe for problem solving for attention yes. um, there's even a question about how much sense of self a horse has there's uh, some uh, research on that but they're they're not um they don't have the capacity to dream and create in in fantasy environments we do that and put it on them Right. And make our nervous system responds and reacts to our nervous system because we're already putting out neurochemicals and pheromones that are in our stress response that the horse is then reading. And we think he's reading, you know, doing this because, but he's actually picking up on us. Absolutely. Exactly. And that's when you see that, that, that motoric parasympathetic sympathetic response, that fright and flight response. So yes, totally, totally. So yeah, it's, it's just really interesting. I think that's why we just have to become a little bit more educated about the response versus the reactions that they are giving us and our responses and our reactions and influences to them. So absolutely. And, and just in defense of things that we have done with our horses, because I can, I can already hear, I can hear people from watching the webinar that are already beating themselves up for what yeah. they've done. And I, you know, and it's, it, that is not a useful thing. There is again, a story that we're creating and the horses you know, we've all been imperfect. <laughs> that is part of the reality of this environment, this world that we're in, that we are imperfect and we make mistakes. And what I find is that horses are so willing to forgive the mistake as long as they understand that the intention is clear and that the intention really is to do no harm. But when the intention is to harm, the horse is going to react in a very different way. And so, you know, we're not perfect. We all make mistakes. I can think of a number of horses that from my childhood, and I'm like, if I had it to do over again, I would do it differently. Well, you know what? I can't do it over again. All I can do is educate myself and make sure I have enough choices so that I don't get in that frustrating bind where abuse happens. And I really believe that abuse happens where we run out of choices Absolutely. and we don't have another option. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And we can't learn or allow ourselves to relearn if we're stuck in 
all of the things we did wrong in the past. Because as you said, we've all done it. <laughs> we've all, and we'll do it again, not intentionally. We'll make mistakes again. I mean, won't we? I mean, well, none of us are perfect. Oh yeah. I mean, yes, <laughs> absolutely. We make mistakes again. And we, you know, if we've had old patterns, we tend to fall back. I can think of yesterday, I fell back on an old pattern. And, the, and then afterward I was like, wow, that's an old pattern. Yeah. But, but the more we recognize it. Okay. So, yeah, absolutely. so anyway, moving on. So the, the cervical spine obviously has highly sensitive areas. The thoracolumbar fascia is another highly sensitive area because we have many layers of the fascia that comes from the thorax through the lumbars to the sacral, sacral um, area of the horse. And you've got your goji tendon organs that are actually situated in there. So again, this is super important that we, we have an understanding of the stretch the extension and the flexion, the, the stretch function of our, of our horse's top line, um, working our horse correctly and posturally correct and understanding actually what some of the terminology is like, you know, we hear all the time, the horse has to be in self-carriage. What actually is self-carriage and how do you get it? And where are the muscles and what are the muscles that are orchestrated and actually achieving that so the horse can perform correctly. And, um, when a horse actually stretches correctly through his top line, there's a hormone release, which is an insulin-based hormone. Um, and that hormone actually carries within it the building blocks for the correct muscle um, uh, fibers, I should say. So it's the correct muscle fibers. So when you have a horse that correctly stretches through his top line, because he's being worked correctly, because his cervical his thoracic lumbar vertebrae and his cervical vertebrae can actually move and articulate the way they're supposed to. These um, hormones are released, which then allows the helps for the foundational development of the correct fibers of the muscle. So it makes the muscle stronger and healthier. A horse that does not have those correct stretch mechanisms through his body will certainly have a top line, but it won't be healthy and those muscles will not be healthy. So the importance of stretch is imperative not only for the health and the well-being of the horse and his postural system but also for his um for his proprioceptive system wow. your si joints have a lot of articular and mechanoreceptors and these receptors in here are constantly having conversations with the hindquarters with the lower region of the back and they are receiving lots of in information from the feet where you have your pressure receptors. So the pressure receptors of the feet are sending impulses constantly, as Ida would say, it's the first and the last place, the first and the last thing that hits the ground. Mm -hmm. And um, any, any type of fascial restriction coming from the horse's feet is going to create barriers in the communication between the pressure receptors of the foot and the communication as it goes into the spine. So there's gonna be a delay in the information getting to the spine. And that's kind of like if you were to wear um, a high heel shoe or if you walk around, the bigger the wedge or the high height of your shoe, your own personal shoe as a human, um, the less able the proprioceptors are in your feet are to be able to respond to where you are in time and space because you've got this, this um, this this false information between hindering the information of the proprioceptors so that's why people have lots of different types of accidents and twist their ankles and all sorts of things when you have high shoes that's when um, horses with that are shod or in have an imbalance in their feet their posture will lock into 
that imbalance throughout the body and cause such an asymmetry through the, through the fascia and through the muscles that we start to run into severe compensation and proprioceptive information default. So the body is getting the wrong information. So that might be, for example, if you ask a diagonal pair of legs to move back and forward, just doing some light in-hand work, you find one foot will move, but the other doesn't. That's kind of inhibitory responses to the information coming in primarily from the feet. So lots of, um, lots of information for, um, in the feet. So in, as we wrap up here, um, in, a, in alignment and working with your proprioceptors, we have something called your central programming generators. And I just talked about those very briefly. Um, they work with the proprioceptors, but the biggest difference with these is that a proprioceptor has information coming in and then it has information going out. The CPGs do not have any incoming information. That information is already stored in the brain. So that information just gives output. It doesn't receive input, but it does work with patterns and information that comes in from the proprioceptors so that the, the central programming generators might have to modify what they're doing based on the proprioceptive feedback that they're getting. But these central programming generators determine the rhythmical patterns of the flexion and, and extension in the swing stance, stance of your face. So it's basically where is that foot in time and space and how much flexion and extension do we need to coordinate all these limbs working together. And um, in, in like neural ana neuroanatomy, these, these CPGs are called neural oscillators. And what they're like is a light switch. And the light switch turns on and arranges the gates of the horse as the body knows how to arrange them with the proprioceptive feedback. And then what it does is it allows us to fine tune and work with those gates ourselves as riders. So we have that capability. I find the very interesting thing that I have learned about the CPGs is they have um, two major neural areas where they sit, one in the front of the horse, right around the withers where the, get the, the, the thoracic ganglions are, and then one towards the back of the horse. And the CPGs in the front of the horse inform the CPGs in the, at the back of the horse. So essentially, what we're doing here, this is kind of revolutionary because the front legs are talking to the back legs. And throughout time, we are always thinking about engaging the hind end and getting the hind end going first, which absolutely we have to have engagement of the hind end. But in actual fact, these central programming generators are helping us understand that much of that information at the hind end needs to come from the front end first. And you know this. This is um, this is really interesting because I, I, I um, several years ago I did a little uh, video where I had two skeletons. I have a horse skeleton and a and my little Ned, my human skeleton, and I talked about the importance of the withers having to come up in order for the hind end to come underneath. Yes. Well, that video was on Facebook, and someone sent it to a dressage trainer named Brian Ford. Mm -hmm. and Brian Ford, because of the pandemic, not only watched the video, he went out and experimented with his horses and he's done a, a, a segment on Horse Radio News talking about how it's completely changed his training system, recognizing that the front end 
has to be organized before the rear end. So he, he's no longer worrying about engaging the hindquarters. Yes. He's worrying about the front end coming up so that the hindquarters will automatically engage. Absolutely, Wendy. Absolutely. And, and you know, um, when you start working with the front end, and I, with my in-hand work, I actually start a lot with working with the front end of the horse. And of course, you, you, you have to, with the organization of that, you have to have the release through the base of the neck and the telescoping and you have the, the thoracic sling free. But okay. as you said, then those, those program generators inform the hind end and it's providing everything is able and capable to function back there. Um, it's amazing how it changes the horse's, the ability for the horse to move functionally without you having to push and force or do anything. It's not about that. So yeah, it, it's, it's really interesting. And um, it, it, the central programming generators also, they help with the diagonal information. Now, not just diagonal as in, in the trot, but in any gate, you're always having the information of the CPGs talk to the, say, for example, the right, right front left hind or the left front left and right hind. So it's orchestrating information between the two, the diagonal sides, which is of course the right brain working the left side, the left working the right. And so there's all these connections which just fascinate me. Um, and also if you ever, you're ever riding and you feel your horse is a little heavy on your right rein, um, that is generally your CPG reorganizers or organize, trying to organize, or you might find that if he's heavy on the right rein, the other diagonal pair, um, you don't have quite a response to that, that him responding to your opposite leg. So you can have, you can recognize that your horse has perhaps some imbalances in his body and his central programming generators are needing you to support him a little bit by freeing up that front end and giving more information. And you will start to find that your horse balances out and you feel it both under saddle in hand through your legs, your seat and your reins. So, so are the central generating uh, program generators actually within the spinal cord? Actually, you know, they, they sit outside of the spinal cord. They're, um, they're just they're clusters of nerves, essentially, that sit outside like the ganglions do. Okay. So they were sitting outside of the uh, and where where along the spine are they or roughly along are they located? So they're roughly located right around the top of the withers, like the well I should say if you between the base of the neck and where the withers so where the first and where the first thoracic vertebrae starts to come in yep. around the first second third thoracic vertebrae in that particular region there so right around the withers, and then in the hindquarters they're located right between the lumbars and the SI joint. So, you know, I think the timing of this webinar has been so uh, unconsciously brilliant because yesterday we talked about thoracic spine with uh, the Equisoma folks, Pam and, and Diane. The day before we talked to uh, Raquel Butler and she talked about uh, a stretching, stretching into strength. Um, we've, you've, top, you've touched on so many subjects that we have webinars that you can go back and watch that, that add depth to the information. And if there's pieces of this talk, because this is really in depth, and even though it seemed very simple, this is so deep, um, <laughs> but there's lots of other webinars that you can go back and look at so that you can put this together in your head. Because I'm sitting here listening to this and, um, I, I have a science, I have a master's degree in equine reproductive physiology, so I can follow a lot of what you're talking about. Um, but I know that there's some people in the audience that probably are going, whoa, my head is swimming. Right, right. Um, but then, the good news is there's lots of other webinars they can go and- Right, and the thing is too, is that you can, you can because you put this up online, you can 
you can actually go back and look through it again so that you can start to understand it perhaps in, you know, in, in a different time and space. So you're not, you know, really going into, you can do it in your own time. You don't have to follow through. And so um, all the webinars, just because somebody's asking where they are, they're all on the Surefoot Equine YouTube channel. So just go to YouTube, put in Surefoot Equine, subscribe to the channel. When we put up new video, you'll get a notice. Um, and that's there. This is number, did I say 70? <laughs> One, I think. One, I've lost track. Okay, so um, all right. So let's let's just get wrapped up here. So essentially, okay, I have some questions for you. So let's do the questions really quick while we have a little break. Okay. Um, someone's asking: Out of the four proprioceptors mentioned tonight, is there one that dominates the others, or does it depend on the stimuli, such as constant pain to a foot? Well, if there's con um, a free nerve ending, if there's constant pain, will always be the dominant one because that goes straight to the brain. So the brain is going to give you that constant input. So pain will always dominate because that has to protect the body. But other than that, they all work equally. But you have to remember there's some that work with stretch receptors, some that work with pressure. So if you have, you know, a, a movement in a joint where there isn't so much pressure, but there's a lot of stretch, that is going to be dominate the one where versus the pressure one. Do you see what I mean? So it depends on, it, they all work equally, but it depends on the function in the moment and the movement in the moment as to whether it's their turn to respond or not. Right. So they, they kind of share the work and decide if, if it's this particular movement, then this one's going to predominate because it's addressing that specific issue. Correct. Correct. Yes. Um, I just want to make sure we don't miss on the overview, the impact of the physio pads. I know you haven't. Yeah, have so I'm just, they've got, I'm just going to um, skip. Okay. Let me just do these other two questions. Sure, sure, sure. Okay. Can you have too many stimuli such as saddle, breast collar, boots? In other words, too many things making contact. Yeah. You know, the only way you can have, you can't have too many things making contact, but what you can have is if you have ill-fitting equipment that is causing increased base activity because you've got, again, pain, okay? Then you've got all of this pain stimuli throughout the body, which is, is going to be the dominant stimuli. So, you know, I, I think I'm a big believer in less is more anyway. Um, but yes, you have to be really, and this brings us into, into really this, this topic right here, is we have to be really aware of the equipment that we have on a horse, the correct fitting of it, because let's face it, as soon as you put a saddle or you get on a horse, you are affecting his neurologic, his muscular system, biomechanics, and all that feedback loop because you're putting pressure. Um, and even if you're the, you're the best rider and you've got the best posture, but if you've got an ill-fitting saddle, your posture isn't correct, you're not in a neutral pelvis, you don't have an understanding of the mechanics of your body, then you can, um, you can cause so much more stimulation because the horse the horse's body goes into increased base activity. So that would be my answer to that. Right, and I think a simple way to think about that for women is that if you have a tight bra strap or a bra strap that keeps falling off your shoulder, you're constantly annoyed or, or dealing with that. Um, whereas when your clothes fit well, you don't notice them, right? You just go about your business. And so right. the equipment is fitting well when it doesn't, it's not so much the quantity, but the fit. You can't ever overcome uh, like walking in stiletto heels versus hiking boots when you're out on the trail, right? right. So exactly. um, there was one other thought, but anyway, keep going. I'm going to just check the chat. We've got some comments there. Um, just, just thinking about our effect on proprioception, just in your mind, and, and I'm not going to go into details because we are going really late. Think about posture. Think about the actual movement that your horse is offering you and, and the, is it correct movement? Is it balanced? 
think about the transitions that the horse is making. Is he able to make transitions or is he struggling in his transitions? That doesn't mean he's bad, he's naughty, he's any label. It means if he is struggling perhaps in transmissions, it's an opportunity for you to perhaps look and see if there is some inhibition somewhere. We've looked at organ, we've looked at joints, we've looked at skin, we've looked at muscles, we've looked at our own body responses. So, you know, many people like try to force their horses into transitions. And I urge you, if you're having difficulty or your horse is unable to pick up a, a cantilever, make a transition as smoothly and as balanced as, he, as you would like, don't force him. Uh, bring yourself back to perhaps looking at some of the other factors that are playing into his movement patterns. Is he proprioceptively able to orchestrate two diagonal pairs of legs and is he organizing his front legs and his hind legs? If he's not able to do that, then you're not going to have a, a, an adequate smooth transition because your proprioceptive system is inhibited. Um, Look at the you changes in about what you can do to change that proprioceptive system. Yeah, well, I was actually that was where I was going with terrain changes. So, first of all, um, terrain changes are the best thing for a horse to start to be more informed about his proprioceptive system. So, I have actually in the makings an acre worth of land where I have different footings in throughout this acre. So I'll put sand. I'll, I've got sand in one area. We're going to have, um, you know, crushed rock in another. We're going to have a dip, uh, you know, a, a, a dip in the grass. So he has to walk up and down here. We're going to have water in another area. Um, so we're just having all of these different surfaces. So the horse has to work, walk on all different surfaces. Now my horses are all bare feet, so that proprioceptive input is immediate as they go from perhaps a solid grass to walking down a dip, to walking on some crushed rock, to walking in sand. So their body immediately starts to respond to these changes. So introducing proprioceptive awareness by terrain changes is really super having you know, like your little, um, your little um, seesaws that you can walk your horse over. So he has to change balance and reorganize himself, walking over bridges and different, even different sounding um, devices. So if you have a little wooden bridge that you can walk over and it even sounds different, that is proprioceptive input as well. So anything like that. Um, again, I'm a great believer in doing in hand work and, and having um, an understanding of how each foot and how each leg could can move in and of its own accord and then work together. So taking some time to just perhaps understand there's amazing trainers out there that do in-hand work. Jillian Kreinbring does wonderful in-hand work. You do, you do all kinds of proprioceptive work. Um, putting the horses on these short foot pads are just incredible for proprioceptive integration as far as I'm concerned. I don't know the science i i just nobody does you don't understand i have i have stories <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. and actually you've given us the science because you know when i go when i and this was what i did right in the beginning is i called up bob belker he was yes. the first person i called and asked what's going on but you know when you look at the work that he's done in terms of identifying all of these receptors which now i realize they're all proprioceptors, even though I thought they were somehow, that was somehow different. Don't worry about it. Um, um, that's what we're affecting. We're affecting the proprioceptors. We're giving the horse an organization and space that he is either lost or didn't have. And in looking at these, um, what was the, the CNGs? Not CNGs. Uh, the, the 
central system organizers. Oh, the central central operators. Yeah. It is, yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, I know that that has to be affected when you watch these horses sway because you see them sway in these crazy patterns. Yes, yes. Um, but I think you have a picture. I do. do. I have, um, and and you guys can look back at some of the proprioceptive damage that that that, that we see um, on the slide when Wendy puts it up. But this is a horse um, that I started working with in 2016. She was bought sight unseen. Um, and uh, she looked just fabulous on um, video, but she got off the trailer and I, I kind of said to the owner, don't ever buy a horse sight unseen. But anyway, this little horse basically came off the train as skin and bones. She wasn't anything like she looked in the video and she was, she was lame. There was, I mean, even one or two degrees, she was lame. Her body was in tension patterns. She had stresses throughout her body. So anyway, long story short, this was 2016. She had an abscess in 2017. This whole story went on for about two years. She would abscess, she would be lame. They had x-rays and they diagnosed her with thin soles. Um, and they did actually see some old pedal osteitis, um, perhaps old infection. But they, the owners, are just amazing owners, they did everything that the vets said they should do. They put this horse in rocker shoes. Um, you know, at that time, they weren't, they, weren't, they weren't clear about the effects of the barefoot trimming. But at that point, they did everything they could to try to make this horse comfortable. So anyway, long story short, after about two years in June, I think it was like June to June 2019, this horse abscessed again, and she never got sound. The infection didn't clear up. She did not get sound at all. And finally, in August the 17th, they um, brought in another veterinarian to take x-rays and really look at this horse. And she got diagnosed with um, a keratitis of her hoof, which I still to this day am not completely sure what a keratitis. I had a keratitis in my eye, and I had to have a cornea transplant. So I know it's a bacterial infection that actually eats through stuff. Um, so in a foot, I'm not sure how that presents, but it was a keratitis, which is essentially a bacterial in, uh, infection that's, that's working through the bone of her foot and working through the pedal bone and just um, demineralizing the hoof. So she had surgery in um, August of, I think it was August, let me just check. It was August, uh, August last year in 2019. And this little mare was skin and bones. I mean, they did everything they do could do to feed her up and just just nothing happened her body was just tension 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 and anyway she had surgery they took out the they removed the keratitis they obviously had to resection the entire foot and literally Wendy in five days at the University of Madison she gained 88 pounds because of the stress and the pain relief of her, so for, for, for all of those years, this male was in pain. So you can imagine the effect of the body. If we're talking about no C receptors now, constant input to the brain, pain, 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 pain. So no opportunity then for parasympathetic response. Her proprioceptive system was all over the place. You could see the sweetness of this mare, but she was in pain and she would show ugly, ugly behaviors because she was in pain, mm -hmm. um, but she was the sweetest thing. So part of her rehab has been the physio pads that they have been using on her and for her 
to restore her proprioceptive ability, to start trusting again that her body can feel differently. And amazingly, the other week I was out there and I just had the rider get on and this, she hadn't been on a whole lot, but the horse's body completely changed. We put the, proprio, the, the physio pads on and the horse goes over to the physio pads and she stands on them. Now here's the fascinating, this just makes me so excited to, to share this little piece, but I don't understand it completely. So she has both her feet right on the physio pad. And then she moves the right front foot where she had the surgery and puts the toe on the physio pad right where she had the surgery and right where that, that foot is starting to grow out again. And she stands with just her toe on this physio pad. And I was just blown away, Wendy. It's like, oh my gosh, this, she knows, her body knows where she needs to be in time and space to support her. And I was like, I wish I knew what was happening right now in her brain, you know? I was just like, but proprioceptively, her whole body, Wendy, it was like her parasympathetic system. It's almost like you could see her parasympathetic system go, and all her muscles start to relax and elongate and her she just changed her whole, um, just her whole body shifted and her eyes and everything. And she just stood with her right toe. She's told us, that's all I need. I just need my right toe and my left foot. Thank you very much. It, it's so important to let them show us what they want because I always say that they know their body better than we ever will. Yeah, totally. And it's really about allowing them the opportunity to explore and figure out what's working for them. Yes. Um, and all the trauma in that foot. And of course, her, her entire proprioceptive system has been really, you know, hindered, you know, from the, from the foot all the way up. Um, and so, you know, it's like she's trying to find, redefine what that means, what balance is to her again. And these pads, I, I mean, I, I can't wait to be trained in them and, and work with you so I can, I can learn more and do more. And uh, I know my- I'm, really, I'm like really starting to get the itch to get back on. I have to figure out how to do this. I'm doing a test going up to New Hampshire where everything's kind of quiet in the country and going to yeah. do a workshop with people that I know and um, see how that goes. Because, you know, I really need to get back out and be training people um, because this is such a, and the beauty of it is with very little information, you can offer the horse, like, like your webinar has been phenomenal. The amount of the information dump that you have just given us is so amazing in terms of understanding this. And at the same time, all you have to do is offer it to the horse. You don't have to actually understand or know all this information yeah. because the horses will show us what they need. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, you know, like for me, I'm so um, hungry. To, th that was the first thing, you know, as a scientist, the first thing I wanted to know is how is this working? And I've spent now uh, over eight years trying to answer that question. But, you know, every webinar is another nugget, is another piece of the puzzle. And it's kind of like just putting this jigsaw together to understand how this horse functions and, and what systems the pads are influencing to create these changes. And, I, and you know, and we still don't totally know. One of my favorite things at some point would be to do a brain scan on a horse while they're on a pad. Yes. yes. That's and really what I want to do. Anybody got a brain scan machine out there? 
Yeah, and you know what? That, I swear that's coming because there's there's been some studies with horses having, you know, brain scans. Um, so I, I do feel like that's 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 in our future. I really yes, feel like absolutely it is, and I know I think it's at Stanford they've done a little bit. Okay, so, um, but because I because I think when we see what's happening in the brain while they're on the pads, we're going to understand the a, a a bigger picture of we know there's all these receptors. We know they're feeding into the central nervous system and into the into the brain. And there's information coming out and we see it coming out because we see the change in muscle tone. We see the change in fascia. We see the relaxation. We see the change in movement. We see the coordination. Um, but, you know, I mean, the central nervous system is running that show. And yeah. so I'm yeah. looking that there's neurochemicals released just by the relaxation and the um, and, and different mechanoreceptors. So the horse can find a different comfort in its body that it didn't have before. I know I, I watch my horses on, on the pads and they're just, you know, I've, I've still got some old pads, but they just, their whole body changes. They want them. I mean, yes. it's, it's amazing. It's just, it's just phenomenal. So I think this, this, you know, for retraining for, from the perspective of proprioception, yes, we don't need any of this information. I think it's good for people to understand some of the reasons why their horses might do certain things and to be educated. But ultimately we just have to listen to our horses and they will tell us what they need. And I really feel like, these are just revolutionary in supporting horses to regain proprioceptive awareness in their bodies. I really do. And I just thank you for all of your years of work, Wendy, creating this and just con constantly seeking new information and, and educating us and, um, you know, still seeking for more information. One of these days, we're going to know what's actually yeah. happening in these bodies. <laughs> but until well, I feel then, like I'm, the, I'm sort of this, the steward of this process. Like uh, the, the first horse was 15 seconds when he walked off, went from lane to sound. And it, uh, it was like a lightning bolt. It was, it took over my life. <laughs> it has literally taken over my life, my uh, house, my, you know, <laughs> my horses, my everything. But, um, but you know, it's just, it's, to see how many horses are being helped and through help, see how many people are starting to have a whole new understanding of their horse, recognizing patterns, act, it acts like a magnifying glass, seeing what's going on, seeing changes, feeling changes. You know, it's, it's part of the paradigm shift of becoming aware of the sentient being that we're sitting on and that we need to give them a voice to, so that we can actually form that partnership that we all talk about and wanna have. Absolutely, absolutely. I couldn't, I couldn't have said it better myself. Absolutely. Well, Deb, I, this has been uh, oh. two hours. <laughs> oh it's been Sorry, um, Wendy. <laughs> amazing. It's been really awesome. And I want to thank you so much. You know, I knew just from the communication that we had that this was going to be a, a, just a really powerful talk. And um, what I what I so think is great is that you have tied in so many of the other webinars into a concept to push everything forward. And um, I just really um, want to thank you so much for for spending the time. Well, I just thank you. Thank you for having me. And, and I just 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 thank everybody for being on this evening. And and hopefully we'll all be able to get together in person at some point soon. Yeah. Yep. All right. So tomorrow we're going to go a little more low key, <laughs> I think. Um, um, if you just want to unshare your screen, Deb. Yeah, uh, certainly. Yep. Tomorrow I have Bess Miller as my guest, and she is a breeder of ponies. She's been working with her foals with surefoot pads and um, has, has some amazing stories and experiences working with foals. So when you think about the nervous system and how uh, 
you know, if that horse isn't getting the good information they need right from the beginning, um, this is a way that we can help make sure that they're going to get good proprioceptive input right from the from the start. And um, and what happens when some horses don't seem to have that in the beginning. So I'm really looking forward to having best tomorrow. Um, it's at one o'clock Eastern Standard Eastern Daylight Time. And just remember.